Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When it comes to clothes, having pieces that you can wear anywhere is a must. That's why American Giant makes clothing that fits your life seamlessly with quality you have to feel to believe. Whether you're stocking up for any weather or picking up a special gift, you'll find an impressive selection of staples to choose from. So whether you're on the hunt for a heavyweight hoodie, a fleece jacket, or a hardworking pair of warm sweatpants, American Giant has what you're looking for. Each American Giant piece is designed to last and created with commitment to doing things better. And all their products are made right here in America. Because keeping things local ensures the kind of quality you'll feel and appreciate for years to come. Discover the American Giant difference today. Shop Wear Anywhere Closet Staples at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your order when you use code ANYSTYLE24 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com. Promo code ANYSTYLE24. Hey, small town fam. It's Yardley. How are you guys? I hope you're all wonderfully well. Maybe you're getting ready for Thanksgiving next weekend that's here in the United States. Today, we have the enormous pleasure of catching up with the one and only Paul Holes. Paul tells us about two cold cases that are never far from his mind and that he never gives up hope of solving. These two cases actually circle back to another case he brought us in season five, a case about a young teen named Elaine Davis. We called that episode Buried, and if you want to take a deep dive into the details of that case, it's definitely worth a re-listen. Paul also talks in depth today about the serial killer Phil Hughes. We first heard about Paul's investigation of Phil in an episode from season seven called Then There Were Three. Also, totally worth a re-listen. Now that you're all caught up, please settle in for... Never forget. Hi, I'm Yardley. This is Detective Dan. Hey there. And his identical twin brother, Detective Dave. Hello. And this is Small Town Dicks. You'll hear detectives from small towns around the world discuss their most memorable cases. We cover the intimate details of what went wrong and what went right. As these dedicated men and women search for justice and crack the case. Names and certain details have been changed to protect the privacy of the victims and their families. So please join us in maintaining their anonymity out of respect for what they've been through. Thank Thank you. you. Small town dicks. We have the usual suspects. We have Detective Dave. I never know when she's going to go with me first. (laughs) Hello, Yardley. Hello, David. It's so good to have you. It's good to be here. And we have Detective Dan. Hello. Hello. Nice to see you. Great to be here. Thank you. And small town fam. Ah, it's such a good day. We're so happy to welcome back one of our all-time favorites, the juggernaut of true crime, the one and only Paul Holes. 
<laughs> juggernaut. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> it's so good to have you sitting across the table. Oh, it's awesome. It's been too long. It's been too long. Yeah. So, Paul, really, his reputation precedes him. There's not much of an introduction I can give. I'm just going to hand it over to you. I'm going to hand it over to hand me. Hand it all over to you. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I I guess, you know, your listeners are probably listening because they want to hear a little bit about true crime. They probably do. Since the pandemic, we haven't been able to see each other. And, and so now finally, you know, be in the same room. It really is wonderful. You have some really big things happening. I know you have a book coming out, which I'm super excited for. I do have a book coming out. And would you say it's a biography? It's memoirs. Yes. Oh, fabulous. When I first retired and I thought, okay, you know, I've got this big Golden State Killer case, I thought, well, that's what I need to write about. And so I started writing a book on the investigation of Golden State Killer. Very detailed, very deep dive. But then as we got further into the process and I linked up with an author and then, of course, the literary people are weighing in and hearing about my career, they're saying, oh, no, we need to know more about Paul. We want to know about you. Very unnerving. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yes, it is a memoir of my career. Uh, And, of course, I do talk about aspects of the Golden State Killer investigation. And there's exclusive aspects that have never been released publicly before. But I've been involved in so much more. And so there's select cases that are significant cases in my career that I talk about. And again, there's details about those cases that have never been made public before. But it's also, you know, the impact of working this type of job, these types of cases has had on me, on my family, my relationships. And this is where I feel very exposed in terms of talking about my career and my life. But it is what it is. People learn about me for better or for worse. So we'll see what happens. (laughs) I think certainly for better. I also think that conversation about the deep impact of seeing the worst of humanity every day is profound. And we've discussed it some on this podcast and our listeners certainly respond so favorably to that. But I also think you have to take care of the people who take care of us. And if you don't, we're kidding ourselves. And so hats off to you for being courageous enough to let us in. I can't wait. What's the name of the book? The name of the book is Unmasked, My Life Solving America's Cold Cases. And is it March that it's coming out? March 2022? April 26, 2022. Wow, the actual date. Yes. Well damn fam. Put that on the calendar. Oh. I just pre-ordered it. Oh, you you know, I actually have a mock-up of the cover. You want to see that? Yes. This isn't good for podcasting. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay, it's great. So Small Town Fam, it says, Unmasked, My Life Solving America's Cold Cases, Paul Holes. So there's a big fingerprint, and it looks like the title was ripped from pages. You know, like a serial killer would write a note for ransom and not want you to know what his writing looked like. It's very classy. The fingerprint? That's actually out of my case files. That's a suspect 10 print card. I won't divulge who that is from, but it's actually real. That is Fabulous. Wow, that's the fingerprint that's on the cover, Small Town Fam, on the cover of the book. Oh my God, I'm seriously so excited. This is going to be fantastic. Okay, well, back to the present. Tell us what you brought for us today. Well, what I'm going to talk about is I actually, we're going to go from the present back to 1969. And uh, as you know, I dug into many, many different cold cases. And in Contra Costa County, we had an unusual spike of cases involving 
girls and women that were being killed. And as I ended up digging into these cases, turns out that we had multiple serial killers active during this time in this very small area in the Bay Area. But I want to talk about some cases that uh, few people know about, but I think they're significant cases. And I'll front it, they're unsolved at this time, but doesn't mean that there isn't a prime suspect. And this is where I'm going to bring up the case, 1969 case of Leona Roberts. She was a 16-year-old girl. She was in a relatively short-term dating relationship with a 21-year-old boyfriend named Greg. And Greg lived in a town, Rodeo, California. It's a very small, unincorporated area, so sheriff's office jurisdiction. And it is right on the sort of the northwest coast of Contra Costa County. And for the listeners, um, Contra Costa County. It's zipper. Zipper is. Uh, you can't, can't record in the dining room without zipper. Zipper adds a little bit of ambiance. <laughs> That's right. Oh, Lord. Look at this. See if you'll just sit down, cat. She loves her some Detective Dave. Yeah, that's right. She's going to pray at the altar of Dave. Okay. (laughs) So Contra Costa County in the Bay Area, Contra Costa means opposite coast or other coast. So it's across San Francisco Bay from San Francisco. So to orient people as to where I worked my entire career, it was just northeast of Oakland. And uh, where Rodeo is, is it's on the coastline, but as the Bay turns into the Sacramento River Delta. There's a smaller bay, if you will, called San Pablo Bay. And so that's where Rodeo is located at. It's an industrial blue-collar town. Oil refineries are huge. Contra Costa County is actually, I think it's the third most industrial county in the state of California, in part because it has such a long coastline, so you get a lot of the tankers and stuff that are coming in for the oil refineries. But the boyfriend, Greg, he works up at a barber shop in Napa, and he worked there until 6.30 at night. And then he drives home at about 7 o'clock, comes down to his Rodeo apartment, and he sees Leona's 1957 Volkswagen parked. He was expecting her to be there. And uh, he goes to his front door, and for whatever reason, he says he knocks on his front door, which I thought was a little odd. This is where he lives. But after knocking, he opens the door and notices that it's unlocked. And he goes inside. This is December 10th, 1969. He sees the Christmas tree has been tipped over onto the couch. And the rug has been bunched up as if somebody had really kind of been drug across the rug. Leona's smock, she was a student at a beauty college up in Napa. Her smock is on the bed. And it appears that she possibly got home after she got off work. And I'll get into where she was working in just a little bit. But she's not there. So can I ask you a question? Is this a one-story house? It is a one-story, single-floor apartment. Okay. So from the living room, you might be able to see the bedroom and see that her smock is on the bed. Well, he ends up walking through to look for Leona. It looks like she came inside. Her car's outside. Looks like she came inside, but uh, she's not there. And then he calls... Leona's mom. So Leona is 16 years old. She lived with her parents up in Napa and was attending the beauty college up in Napa, but she had just started a job at White Front Department Store down in Pleasant Hill. And I want to 
expand upon that in a little bit. But literally, this was her first day at work. She did a half shift in the afternoon from one to five. And so Greg calls the mom just to say, hey, you know, I don't know his car here, but is she up with you? And, and mom is like, no, I was expecting her home by nine o'clock. So Leona's plans were when she got off work in Pleasant Hill was to go to Greg's apartment, cook dinner, enjoy the evening with Greg, and then go back home. But now she hasn't. So Leona is reported missing. They don't know where she's at. And the sheriff's office responds and starts taking a look at the crime scene. They do process the crime scene, but minimally, you know, at this point in time. Right now they have a potential missing person. But... One of the things that is noted is that even though her smock was present, Leona's purse is not in her car and it's not inside the apartment. And none of her clothing is in either location either. Sheriff's office responds and then they start talking. They start doing a canvas and start talking to people that live. It looks like a house, but there's like a, like a fourplex. A house that basically has four apartments in it. Yeah. And the upstairs witness, a woman, said that around 5.30 to 6 o'clock, she thought she heard a woman scream maybe three times and possibly heard this woman attempt to come up the stairs to where she was at. And she recalls that when she got home earlier that day after work, she saw a suspicious male near a blue station wagon. And when she hears the women scream and then she hears the door shut, ultimately she looks out her window and she sees the blue station wagon driving away. So, of course, okay, whose blue station wagon is that? And she does give a brief description of the suspicious male. He was roughly 25 years old, blonde hair, and about 180 pounds. When he had seen her pull into the parking lot, he kind of went back to that blue station wagon. So when he saw this woman upstairs pull into the parking lot? Yeah, so when she comes home earlier and she sees this guy that she doesn't recognize, and he sees that she sees her, he kind of goes back to this vehicle. And then after she's hearing what appears to be a struggle going on downstairs where Leona's at, then she sees the blue station wagon driving away later. So, of course, this very well could be the abductor of Leona. So that was a good bit of information. Unfortunately, she wasn't able to provide a composite or anything like a license plate or partial license plate or anything. We just have, it's a blue station wagon that had like ribs on the roof. So an old style vehicle. As they get this information, they recognize, okay, this seems like this is a bad thing. Leona just didn't walk away. You know, she's not a runaway. It does appear that she's met with some foul play. So sheriff's office ends up doing extensive searching in the area. And of course, you search any area, you're going to be finding some women's articles of clothing. But in essence, this just goes nowhere. Leona is gone and nothing they never find her body or anything. For 18 days. So, 18 days later, up in Marin County... So Marin County is the county that's just across the Golden Gate Bridge from San Francisco. And in the Bolinas Lagoon, 
This is a little lagoon that's right off the Pacific Ocean, just north of Stinson Beach. They find a body. This body is off the side of Bolinas Road, about three quarters of a mile down from where Bolinas Road intersects with Highway 1, Pacific Coast Highway. Nude female. She is in sort of the tide line of the lagoon, but it's obvious based on the vegetation. There's like very tall, they kind of describe them like celery stalks that have been crushed down, obviously from somebody taking her body down or her body rolling down the side of the embankment. And her hair is tangled in blackberry bushes. At the time her body's found, it's low tide, but it was obvious based on the waterline that at one point her body was at least partially underwater, the upper part of her body. Advanced decomposition, a lot of insect activity. So Marin County authorities end up documenting that scene and then this body's autopsied. It's a Jane Doe at this point. The body has a class ring from Napa High School on with the initials JAS on the ring itself. And there was a scar low down on the abdomen. It turns out the body had the appendix removed. But Marin doesn't know that there's a missing person out for a few days until Contra Costa authorities contact and say, hey, we've got this missing 16-year-old girl and you've got this recovered body. And uh, sure enough, the class ring was a clue because it was Napa and Leona was out of Napa. And the initials were actually Leona's girlfriends. This was Leona's girlfriend's class ring who lived across the street. And so those initials were the girlfriend's initials. So now they're getting a clue. This is likely Leona. Of course, we're in the days before DNA testing, and her hands, the skin, the ridge detail on her hands were so bad that they couldn't get prints to identify her. But ultimately, they do identify her as Leona from dental records. So once they got a possible, oh, this could be Leona, then they were able to track down the dentist, get her dental records, and an identity was affected. At autopsy, there was no obvious signs of trauma. However, both her wrists showed evidence of bindings as well as her ankles, and the bindings had been removed. The pathologist takes a vaginal swab and does a vaginal smear and says no sperm present, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But what do you think the cause of death was determined to be? Strangulation or drowning? I hope it's not drowning. Not drowning? Not strangulation? No. Going through my Rolodex of obscure. I guarantee you're not going to guess it. The pathologist ruled the cause of death as a viral infection. What? This is a huge miss. Here is a girl that has been abducted. She's got evidence of being bound. She's in an advanced state of decomposition. So obviously there's going to be some difficulties in determining what happened. But you can't issue that as a cause of death. It would be so much better if he just said undetermined. Yes, right. We don't know. From my perspective, it's homicide with the circumstances. We just don't know what killed him. Likely it was what we'd call a soft kill. It was likely a strangulation or asphyxiation in which with the advanced decomposition, the evidence of that could potentially be gone. But this case, at least investigatively, was from law enforcement pursued as a homicide for sure. So even though they said she died from a virus, the police said, no, no, we're going to investigate this. Like The police are, I mean, they're going, there's been a struggle inside this apartment. She's been bound unless, you know, she's being held captive somewhere and contracts a disease and then dies of that disease, which probably not. I mean, 
that's just a brain dead call. Yeah. You look at the totality of the circumstances and you're like, how did this person die? And you're like, I'm going to ignore all the binding evidence and the fact that the body's naked and that this is a missing person with a purse gone. And she's in this marsh. Right. It's just, it defies logic. Yeah. You know, and this is another one of my pet peeves, and I see this all the time, and there's nothing that can be done on it. But during this era, you know, I mentioned that the pathologist did take a vaginal smear, no sperm, you know, so no signs of sexual assault. You got a nude female that's been bound. You know, this is a sexually motivated crime. But what many people don't recognize is that how these smears, whether it be done at autopsy or whether it be done, let's say, on a rape victim in a hospital, is that they'll take the vaginal swab and then they take a microscope slide and with the wet swab, they just kind of run it on the microscope slide. And so everything's kind of smeared across a very large area and then it's put under a microscope. And there's some staining in order to differentiate the different cells that are present, but it's extraordinarily insensitive for detecting sperm. And I've done this many times where a pathologist has said, negative for sperm. You get it into a lab and we actually concentrate the cells and put them in a real small area. And we can even do what's called differential digest to kind of get rid of some of the other debris, the vaginal cells from the, the victim that are obscuring. And we often find sperm when a pathologist or a doctor in a hospital setting has said there's no sperm present. So what ends up happening to that vaginal swab? 1969, he threw it away. Oh, no. That could have been DNA. Yes. And I see this over and over and over again from this era where the pathologist is saying, I am visibly seeing a foreign glistening substance inside this woman, takes a swab going numerous intact spermatozoa, and you're going, score, I can solve this case. Where's that swab? He's thrown it away. And that's the only evidence in the case. It is so maddening. Yes. And it's just like, I have to remember that, okay, back then they couldn't do much with that. All it was really was, okay, there was a sexual assault, so there was another criminal charge, but they didn't have the technology in order to be able to use it as evidence to identify this person left this DNA evidence. And so from their perspective, it's like, well, I did everything I could with it. And yes, if somebody's arrested, they could be charged with a sex act because of where I found the semen. Yes, but nowadays, I would guess, even if you can't imagine where technology takes us, say, even in a decade, probably people are hanging on to all sorts of evidence because they're like, I don't know, but don't let me be the determiner of what's coming down the lane, you know? Right, but there's still a little bit of a gap between the criminal investigation and the death investigation. And it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, and it varies from quite frankly, pathologist to pathologist in terms of the diligence that they take in order to recover evidence for the criminal investigation. So oftentimes, let's say you do have a victim of a sexually motivated homicide, and so her body is being, you know, basically the typical orifice swabs, the oral, rectal, vaginal swabs are collected. Minimally, you want two swabs. And so that's what they often do, but some pathologists, you know, they put it in, pull it out, and it's really a very poor sampling. And you can't guarantee that you have really adequately sampled what was present. And so from a forensic perspective, it's like, 
don't rely on two swabs. Rather, you do 10 swabs. I've seen this where the pathologist will put all six swabs together and swab it around. Well, are those swabs that are in the middle of that bulk actually touching anything? No. We want six independent swabs to ensure that there's an adequate sampling because you don't know what's on each swab. And this is where it really is that communication between the investigating agency and the detectives and or the criminalists or the CSIs and the pathologists to have that cooperative aspect. So, but this is just one of those frustrations from 1969. I don't even have photos of Leona at autopsy or even where she was recovered in order to be able to kind of independently assess and go, okay, maybe there is something that this pathologist didn't have the eye, the experience or expertise and he missed just because he doesn't have that skill set. But we don't have that documentation. This is a homicide. She likely was strangled or asphyxiated in some capacity. Her tox was completely negative. She had uh, 07 blood alcohol, which a lot of that is likely due to decompositional changes that happen, what we call endogenous production of alcohol through decomposition. So here we have now this Leona Roberts case. And uh, of course, Greg, the boyfriend, is being looked at hard. How old was he? He was 21. So she was 16. He was 21. They had dated for about five months total, but she had broken up with him and dated another boy in between and then got back together with him. His alibi was he was at work up at the barbershop in Napa until 6.30. Driving time, getting home at 7 o'clock in Rodeo is spot on. They look at him, but they do move away from him. And this case literally just disappears everybody just forgets about this case. And then that's when I'm digging into it. And the sheriff's office from the missing person side did a fair amount of work. Marin County did a fair amount of talking to witnesses and family and even some potential suspects. But it was suspects that were based on her social circles, her past history. Two years prior, she had been raped by her girlfriend's boyfriend. Oh my God. And so he becomes a suspect just because of that crime that had occurred. And so they're talking to him and trying to figure out his whereabouts on the time that Leona had gone missing. So that was really their focus is just looking at who Leona knew. That's what law enforcement does. And especially in 1969, when there isn't kind of looking at the region, which that's where I'm going to go and understanding, you know, you may have an active predator then unfortunately, we don't have any evidence in this case. If you had DNA, you could do the genealogy chart. If that one swab had been saved, I don't know how many swabs he took, but if those had just been saved, that literally could potentially solve this case. So in this case, the abduction occurs in Contra Costa County. Mm -hmm. And presumably, you got a body in Marin County. So Contra Costa is investigating a kidnapping. Yep. And Marin is doing the homicide investigation? Yep. And are they cooperating? To the extent that I could tell, there was at least communication between the two agencies, but literally once Leona's body is found up in Marin, the sheriff's office case file pretty much ends. And there are some supplements in there about the body being found up there, but in essence, they punted to Marin. And this is where knowing what's going on regionally becomes so important. So remember, I said Leona worked at this white front department store in Pleasant Hill. That's what it's called? I guess that was a store like a Montgomery Wards or something. First day on the job, you know, 16-year-old girl drives down from Napa. In fact, she drove down. She dropped by a girlfriend's 
house to pick up a couple of dollars and the girlfriend had a, hey, you're going into Whitefront. I've got a refund that's needed. Can you bring me some cash back with, you know, whatever this receipt that she had? And so Leona had accepted that. The friend didn't detect any type of, you know, Leona seemed on edge or anything. It was just a normal day for Leona. So Whitefront Department Store in Pleasant Hill was on Contra Costa Boulevard. And this is now where looking at other cases, and I know previously when we recorded, I talked about another case, Elaine Davis. Yes. Okay. And obviously I'm not going to go into great detail since that's already out there. A little bit of a summary on Elaine Davis. In December of 1969, right before Leona's case, Elaine Davis is abducted out of her house. The neighborhood that Elaine lived on, now technically she's in Walnut Creek, but the neighborhood she lived on was right off of this Contra Costa County Boulevard corridor. Elaine, 17-year-old girl, Leona was 16. Elaine, ultimately we identify her. This is where I talk about one of my proudest moments in my career is being able to dig this Jane Doe up and having an anthropologist identify her as Elaine Davis two weeks before mom died. Right. Elaine was dumped in the ocean down in Santa Cruz and washed up on the beach. So within less than two weeks of each other, you have two teenage girls that are abducted out of residences and then their bodies are taken out of the jurisdiction and dumped in bodies of water or near bodies of water. They both have a connection to this location of Contra Costa Boulevard. That is remarkable. So now we get to three months later, March 3rd, 1970. 15-year-old Cassette Ellison is a student attending Campolindo High School in Moraga. Moraga is further south of where Leona was working in Pleasant Hill. Kind of the best way to explain the location of Moraga is It's a tiny town that is just on the other side of the Oakland Hills. And there is a road that connects sort of the Oakland area that goes through the hills and then goes up into the town of Moraga. So Cassette gets out of school. She catches the bus and she takes the bus home. Now, where she lived was just south of the town of Moraga. Her parents owned a property in a house that was East Bay Mud property, the utility district property. It was like a park area. And the house was a quarter of a mile off the road. Cassette would have to get off the bus and walk a quarter mile through, literally, it's on a drive, a dirt gravel road, through a wooded area, through hills, in order to get back to the family residence. So very isolated. So the bus driver drops Cassette off and is interviewed, and Cassette is seen, you know, crossing the road. And other students say, yeah, we saw Cassette. She slid her books underneath the kind of the metal gate that went across the driveway and started to climb that in order to be able to get on the other side in order to walk back to her family residence. When parents come home several hours later, Cassette's not home. Her school books aren't there, and she is gone. She is just a missing girl for 10 months. And then her body is found. And her body is found dumped on the east side of Mount Diablo. She's dumped into a creek off of Morgan Territory Road. Very, very remote location. Very forested. And obviously, now it's a homicide. We know this for sure. Talking to Cassette's friends, you know, their early investigators, she's just a runaway. You know, and the friends were so upset that that's the way it was treated back in the day. 
Now, with Cassette, you know, this is just three months after Elaine and Leona. Moraga is a small, tiny little town. Everybody knows everybody there. There's a older woman. When I say older, uh, I think she's probably my age now. <laughs> We're the same age, I think, Paul. You're younger than me. Not by much, right? We're about the same age. That's right. Yeah, we listen to the same music. That's right, we yes. do. <laughs> um, Justin Bieber. Oh, cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but this woman who was driving back from work from Oakland, she was taking that back road that goes with basically the Oakland Hills. And so she would come by work cassette would be dropped off by the school bus. And she sees Cassette talking to a man. And she describes this man, a handsome man. She gives a composite, and he was wearing a hat. So we have this composite of a man, a good-looking man wearing a hat. This ends up becoming important. And if anybody has listened to my Audible book, A Devil in the Valley, you'll see where I'm going because I really started digging into a serial killer in the area by the name of Phil Hughes. Oh, yes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Detective Dave from Small Town Dicks here. Let me share a personal experience that solidified my trust in Simply Safe, the home security system I rely on. One night, I received an alert on my phone from Simply Safe. It was a motion detection notification for my own home. Thanks to Simply Safe's real-time alerts, I was able to quickly access the live camera feed and confirm that it was just a false alarm caused by a curious raccoon. The peace of mind I felt knowing that my home was safe and secure, even when I was miles away, across town, was priceless. Simply Safe is advanced home security that puts you first. Simply Safe isn't just a security system, it's a guardian that watches over my home and loved ones with precision and reliability. With Simply Safe, I have peace of mind knowing that my home is protected 24 7. The easy to use system is customizable to fit my needs, and the professional monitoring service is always there to alert me of any potential threats. Whether I'm at home or away, Simply Safe gives me confidence that my loved ones and belongings are secure. The wireless design and DIY installation make it simple to set up and operate. If you're looking for a home security solution that goes above and beyond, trust Simply Safe. Don't compromise on safety. Choose Simply Safe and experience the protection you deserve. Trust me, as a detective who's seen it all, Simply Safe is the real deal. Try it today and enjoy the peace of mind that comes with top-notch home security. Right now, 
Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. So, Phil in 1972, so two years later, after Cassette, Leona, and Elaine, Phil abducts Marine Fields when she gets off work at the Kmart in Pleasant Hill, which was right next door to where Leona got off of work at the White Front Department Store. Oh, wow. Contra Costa Boulevard is Phil's hunting ground. And so Maureen Fields is a solved case. He was convicted of that case and two others. He's serving time for three cases, Maureen Fields in 1972, the induction of 15-year-old Lisa Beery out of the Oakland Hills, the Montclair area, in 1974, where he buried her body in the town of Moraga, up on a hill, and then the uh, 1975 homicide of Letitia Fago in Walnut Creek, who was a housewife who broke into the house and raped and strangled Letitia. And ultimately, Phil's wife, Sue, is the one who came forward and said, I know my husband has done these three crimes because I helped him. That's right. I remember. So now this is where having that regional perspective, going back in time and understanding the investigations that have occurred in these other cases becomes important because in Phil's cases, they end up interviewing his girlfriend, Kathy, who lived literally, I could probably throw a baseball from... Cassette's house over a hill and hit where Kathy lived. And Kathy had an on and off, very tumultuous relationship with Phil. He would strangle her during consensual sex. And the parents thought he was a bad guy and parents were right. But Kathy, when she was being interviewed for the three cases in 79, when Phil was arrested for those three cases he was convicted of, she had told those investigators that when they were first dating, Phil had come to her and said, I've killed and mutilated three women. That statement was made before any of the three other cases that Phil is known to. So that's when you start looking at Elaine Davis, Leona Roberts, and Cassette Ellison. And so this is, you know, for a long time was my mission in life was to see which cases, and there's other cases out there, you know, three days after Cassette, we have Patricia King, who is found strangled at the Diablo Valley College after she got off this figure control class. Figure control? What is that? It's got to be like an exercise class or something. Exactly. She went to figure control class in the gymnasium at night and then left that early because she had some potatoes in the oven. And then the next day, her body is found. It's been pulled behind a wall. She had gotten to her Volkswagen bug and then looks like she was blitzed there, pulled behind the wall. And she's been strangled with her own pantyhose and the knot was tied from behind. And then two days later, in the men's restroom at Diablo Valley College, there's a writing that basically, I'm going to paraphrase, but that girl I strangled was sure fun to fuck in the ass. And it matched exactly with what probably happened with Patricia. Diablo Valley College is right off Contra Costa Boulevard. So you start to see, you need to have the regional perspective and you need to have an understanding of the details of the various cases that have occurred during that time because none of these cases really were being looked at as possibly being by the same offender back in the early 70s. And then when Phil Hughes came forward and he was convicted of the three cases, they say, well, he's good for all of these. So they stopped doing any investigation. 
my Audible book, I start talking about, well, I'm going to hang another case on him because I wanted to get a death-eligible case because he's eligible for parole. I wanted to get a death-eligible case so now we could basically drop something on his head to make him uncomfortable and try to get him to admit to everything he's done. But as I'm digging into these other cases, some cases that were assumed to be filled turned out to be other serial killers active in the area. Really? Yes, you get a Daryl Kemp, you get a Charles Jackson. We had Joe Naso that was active in the area at the time. And there's probably more, you know, and there's other unsolved cases. But fundamentally, that's really kind of what I'm trying to underscore about this case, starting with Leona Roberts today. But it's not just Leona Roberts, because that case right now, there really is no direction to go investigatively or forensically. But it could still potentially be solved because of other cases that may have evidence. Right. Two questions. One, does the composite that the older woman driving by Cassette's driveway and gate, that rural sort of family home, does it more or less match Phil Hughes? And or was there a car present because it's pretty remote? Like, was there the blue station wagon? I'm guessing no. No blue station wagon was ever identified in Leona's case. That's an unknown. The composite. So when I'm digging into Phil Hughes... I'm now going into Alameda Superior Court evidence down in their basement, and they bring out a box of stuff. And what I'm trying to do is I want to get all the transcripts from testimony at trial and all that. In that box, I find three color print photographs. They're a fill from 1970, 1971. He's holding a bowling ball. He's a big bowler. He's holding a bowling ball, and it's in a parking lot, and he's got a hat on and the hat matches the hat in the composite from the cassette case. And I tracked down the woman who took those photographs, and she was a girlfriend. She had a crush on Phil at the time, but it wasn't reciprocated. And she goes, yeah, I took those photos. It was behind Green Valley Bowl in Moraga, and he was kind of upset about the game that he bowled that day, but he agreed for me to take the photo. And she goes, well, he wore that hat all the time. Wow. And would you say the woman said that he was a good-looking man, When he was fit. When you look at him from the early 70s, yes, he's a decent looking guy. The composite is clean shaven. Phil would be clean shaven, but he would also wear facial hair. You know, he just changed his appearance up over time. And this is Phil's area. He went to Camp Palindo High School, the same school that Cassette went to just years before. But uh, that was where he lived. That's where he was at all the time. And he matches the composite. The frustrating thing is, is in order to really solve this case, either we need Phil to admit or we need to have the evidence. And that's what I thought. I've had other cases where I got DNA evidence. I'm going to close a case on Phil, and it turns out it was another serial killer. So I can't guarantee any of these cases are Phil Hughes cases, but you look at the pattern, and it's like, you know what? He is suspect number one until proven otherwise. I'm guessing Phil doesn't talk to investigators. No. You know, he actually... When he's convicted of the three, he went to San Quentin to be classified, and he's at California Men's Colony down in uh, San Luis Obispo. What does that mean, classified? They evaluate the inmate in terms of, does he have any gang affiliations? Does he have any special needs? Is he a target? Was he sexually assaulting kids? Like Jeffrey Dahmer kind of thing. Exactly. And, And then they figure out within their system, you know, where's the best place for this person to be housed that not only keeps that inmate safe, but also makes it easy for the prison system to basically house him. So he's not going to just be a problem because he's disrupting the entire facility because of his presence. 
imagine, you know, target number one in the nation for inmates is going to be Joseph D'Angelo, right? And the Golden State Killer. He's a former cop. I mean, he's the most notorious serial killer now, and he's in the prison system. But he is in Corcoran, where they've got the best administrative segregation, where they literally keep him isolated from everybody else, and they can control him and protect him at the same time. Otherwise, you get like a Jeffrey Dahmer situation or a Whitey Bulger, which is just insane. You got an old man in a wheelchair and the inmates are seen wheeling him away and then he ends up being bludgeoned to death. It's like, how does that happen within a facility? But when Phil was at San Quentin waiting to be assigned to his facility, the Alameda County prosecutor, Dick Iglehart, and the Oakland homicide investigator, Alex Smith, who I both met with or spoke with, and they both have since passed away, But they both told me, they went to Phil and basically said, okay, Phil, I mean, we got you on three. We know you've done more. I mean, they knew, you know, this is now 1980, I think. You know, so just tell us. And Phil looked at them. He literally goes, fuck you. I'll be out in seven. If not, I'll be out in 20, which at that time was real because that's the type of sentencing that was happening for these types of cases, which is just absurd. Phil basically was convicted of three abduction homicides and was eligible for parole after a few years. And these families have to keep going to these parole hearings in order to basically tell the parole board the trauma they suffered, the life that was lost, in order to convince the parole board to keep Phil inside. And that's why I was trying to find another case, going, this is just re-traumatizing these families over and over and over again. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com So when is Phil due for parole? So he just had a hearing, and I think they gave him the maximum, which now in California, I think it's 10 years before he's eligible to be heard again. I went to his 2001 parole hearing, which was his 20th. His 20th year in prison? Yeah. And so that's where he thought he would get out. And uh, that's when I met the family. And that's when I was hoping to actually see Phil in person. And then Phil heard about all the family that was out there, and he just sent his attorney out. And he was just a coward. He didn't want to confront the family. And at that time, the pro board chair came up to me and said, this guy shouldn't be eligible for parole. 
but we did the best we could. We gave him six years, which was the max at that time. And then Phil came up for parole again. And I don't know how many times since, but I think it's at 10 years now. So maybe in another five years, he might be up again. And how old will he be? Phil was born in 1948. Okay, so he'll be in his 70s. Yes, he's in his 70s. He's 73 right now. Believe it or not, he's married. Really? And he's adopted that woman's children who are now adults. And that woman is a local school teacher. I've got letters she had to write to the prison warden basically saying, I know what Phil's been convicted of. He's been convicted of sexually assaulting and murdering three women. I still want to marry him. Okay. Well, to each his own. Is there a DNA for Cassette? No. So one of the interesting things with Cassette, it's not outside the realm of possibility, is that, and this, Dan and Dave will recognize how incredible this find was. When Cassette's body was found off in this very remote location, found in January of 1971 in a creek off of Morgan Territory Road east of Mount Diablo, very isolated area, one of the investigators that went out there was going, hey, hold on, six months ago, there was a pile of clothes found on the side of the road, just up the road. And at the time, it was just a suspicious cirque because there had been some sexual assaults on the east end of the county, way away. And they thought, well, maybe these clothes are related to those sexual assaults. So they rolled out and collected those clothes and they decided, well, they're not related to the sexual assaults. So they just threw them into property as found property. And so now this investigator is going, wait, there's that pile of clothes. And then they go, property still has them. Turns out to be Cassette Allison's clothing. And those clothes weren't dirty. Because this is now five to six months after Cassette went missing. Those clothes were clean. So it looks like the killer went out, killed Cassette, dumped her body, but still had her clothes. And then five or six months later, dumps them. And then they're found right away. And then Cassette's body is found later. On those clothes, my wife actually did the work. Oh, wow. I don't know if our listeners know that your wife does what you used to do. She's a forensic investigator. Yeah. A sciencey person. That's cool. She found a little bit of sperm. But at the time, this is now early 2000s, she couldn't get a DNA result. So now it's like, we need to go back. So you can go back and retest that little bit? Try to rescreen and see if you can find a better sample. This case I'd love to see solve. Cassette Ellison is one of my passion cases for sure. And that really is what it's going to take. Her books have never been found. Her purse was never found. Her clothes were found. And the clothes show the cutting that the offender did with a knife in order to cut the clothes off of this petite little girl. So hopefully, you know, there's evidence there that could identify who her killer was, whether it be Phil Hughes. There's another serial killer in play, Roger Kibbe, who was killed in prison recently. Is Kibbe the one that had a very unique way of cutting the clothing? Yeah, he did the non-functional cuts. So, you know, he had this peculiar thing. His mom was a nurse or something. And there were some, you know, some psychological things going on with him and his mom. And he would take like scissors or knives and just kind of randomly cut some of his victim's clothing. There's some aspect of that with Cassette's clothing. But one of the more interesting connections with Roger Kibbe is that his brother participated in the search for Cassette after she went missing. His brother was a ranger with East Bay Regional Parks District at the time. His brother ended up becoming a homicide investigator, and Roger always protected his brother and would never talk about it, but there's always been a thought that his law enforcement brother and Roger may have had a closer criminal history together, and both are now dead. 
but it's sort of like, so I've got the brother of a serial killer searching for Cassette Ellison, whose clothing were cut. And there's a question as to whether Roger Kibbe was actually out of custody. He was serving time for some minor offense. And technically, on paper, it looks like he's in custody for Cassette's case. But then there was also work release programs. The records for that from 1970 are just, you're not going to get it. I mean, amazing work by that investigator to have the presence of mind to recognize, hey, I remember a report about some clothing being found up here about six months ago and tying that together. I mean, a lot of people, it would have just went right past it. would have blown right past that. And those clothes would have just been dumped in the trash and property probably within the next week, you know? And so that was an amazing find. Unfortunately, it just hasn't turned the case yet, but it could. Yeah. That's incredible. Before we wrap this one up, one of my questions is, it seems as though every time a girl went missing, she was considered a runaway. What did it take back then for somebody to go, maybe not a runaway? Did you have to end up dead? Unfortunately, you know, at least with what I've seen in my jurisdiction back in the 1970s, there needed to be very concrete evidence of foul play. And unfortunately, a lot of times, if you just have a girl that just disappears, their primary assumption is runaway. You know, the public doesn't see this, but law enforcement is dealing with these types of reports day in and day out. And on the surface, many of these reports read the same of got a missing family member. Right. And back then, they didn't have computers where you could just do a digital search for information So I imagine it's much harder to separate the wheat from the chaff when you're just dealing with stacks of paper, literally. Exactly. You know, and this is something that on my podcast with Billy, we talk about it where, you know, you got to listen and judge the family. And there needs to be policies to make sure there's resources being put in earlier and not just assume it's a voluntary runaway or something like that. But yeah, either have that issue or you have laziness. I just don't want to do this right now. It comes down to work quality, comes down to just basic investigative skills that some officers, frankly, lack because they can't ask the critical questions or the answers that they're getting don't raise any hairs on their neck, whereas somebody else who's like, I need to dig into that. Right. It seems really important that in law enforcement, you be able to read the room. You got to read the family and you got to read the circumstances. You got to read the history. Even if the person is a constant runaway, if you go into that house and the Christmas tree is tipped over and the rugs are disheveled, I would go, that doesn't just seem like they walked out the front door. And also her smock, Leona's smock from work was there, but her purse wasn't there. So clearly she had been there. Right. Why does she take her car? If you're going to run away, I'd rather drive away than walk somewhere. You have a witness hearing screams, hearing a little bit of a commotion, not necessarily an argument, but two voices. You know, so there's something going on downstairs and a suspicious man in a blue station wagon. And Yeah, you know, so unfortunately, a lot of attention was put on the boyfriend, but they did move off of him. But still, he actually sent me a letter. I talked to him on the phone. He sent me a letter and he's still bitter about the way he was treated from back in the day. He was in love with Leona and uh, it devastated him. I mean, she was advanced state of decomposition with insect activity, you know, maggots. And they took him into the morgue to look at her to try to affect an identification. And it's like, what the hell is that? You don't do that to somebody. No. Shake him, rattle him. Yep. Shake him up. But that's just so inappropriate. We don't do that anymore. No. That's a good way to get suspended. Absolutely. Cosette was the one found 10 months later. Yeah. 
Was it just skeletal remains? Skeletal remains, some soft tissue still present. Connective type tissues? Connective, a little bit of skin, but uh, yeah, she was not in good shape. So because of that, because most of the flesh was not present, could you tell how she was killed? No, not a clue. Let's say you do have, say it's a stabbing or gunshot where you have significant damage to the bones or even bludgeoning. Or the hyoid. The hyoid, if it's recovered, like with cassette, she's in a stream, you know, a creek with, at times, heavy currents. So small bones, like the hyoid, once it degrades to where the connective tissue is gone, that hyoid is sometimes never found. But you can sometimes determine cause of death on skeletal remains, and that's where the anthropologists come into play. But uh, with cassette, no. And in all likelihood, she was either stabbed, because I know the offender had a knife based on the types of cuts to her clothing, but I don't see any stab wounds, stab defects to the clothes. In all likelihood, she was probably strangled. Right. Oh, Paul. We're still hoping that these will be solved, yes? Oh, absolutely. I have many cases in my past that I'd love to see solved. Cassette is probably number one. Mm. And isn't it reasonable to think that somebody out there knows something? Somebody other than the killer probably knows something, right? With cassette, that's hard to say. It depends on, you know, is this killer, the offender, somebody who would divulge what he's done to somebody? Some of these guys do, some of them don't. And if it's somebody who doesn't, and it's just him and the victim, then it's only him and the victim that know Whereas Phil Hughes confessed, I mean, his wife was in on three of them, and he confessed three others to the girl he was seeing on the hill. Well, I wouldn't say he confessed, but he at least put that carrot out there. Phil claimed he was just testing her. <laughs> really? That's not how I would test my, <laughs> my new boyfriend. <laughs> just so happens he actually kills women. Yeah, just so happens he does. And I know he's done more than the three he's been convicted of. And we know, Paul, that you won't rest until you get justice for those victims, if you possibly can. You're a rock star, Paul. This has been such a joy. It's been so great. You are a sight for sore eyes. It's great to be with all three of you again. I love it. Thank you. Yeah, enjoyed it. Please come back and see us. Thank you. Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Soaring Bajan, Gary Scott, and me, Yardley Smith. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor, The Real Nick Smitty, and Alec Cowan. Our music is composed by John Forrest. Our editors extraordinaire are Logan Heftel and Soaring Bajan. And our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com. Small Town Dicks would like to thank Speech Docs for providing transcripts of this podcast. You can find these transcripts on our episode page at smalltowndicks.com. And for more information about Speech Docs and their service, please go to speechdocs.com. And join the Small Town fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Small Town Dicks. We love hearing from you. And if you support us on Patreon, your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash Small Town Dicks podcast. That's right. 
Your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country in search of the finest, rare, true crime cases told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. So thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you.